From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. This week, the latest Me Too revelation led to a new discussion about the gray areas of consent. The man at the center of the commotion, comedian Aziz Ansari. The story told by the woman who calls herself Grace. Telling the website Babe, I believe that I was taken advantage of by Aziz. It was by far the worst experience with a man I've ever had. After having dinner, the two went back to Ansari's apartment, but the woman says Ansari became too aggressive, pulling her hands toward his genitals multiple times. Ansari has built his career on being tuned into the particulars of dating dynamics and feminism, both in his book Modern Romance and, of course, in his comedy, as in this exchange on his show Master of None, when his character, Dev, learns that his collaborator, Chef Jeff, has been accused of harassing women. People on our crew have come up to me and said you've been inappropriate with them. What people? What are you talking Women? Yes. So you're telling me none of this happened? None of this happened. I don't know, man. That's hard for me to buy. I mean, why would these people make it up? Vox staff writer Carolyn Frampke wrote on the controversies that flared after the piece, which centered on the recollections of Ansari's date, appeared on Babe.net. Some of the critiques focused on the journalism. According to one of their editors, Babe gave Ansari, I think, about five and a half hours to respond on the Saturday of a holiday weekend. Usually you give someone about 24 hours to understand the allegations and respond to them. I think the one critique that has complicated the conversation so much is how the story was told. I heard some confusion afterwards from people who genuinely couldn't remember even having read it, whether it was written from her perspective or whether it was written by a reporter, which is a sign of confused editing. A lot of the details given were irrelevant. Stuff like their wine choice and that Ansari ordering white when she wanted red. Details about her outfit with an editorial interjection that, quote, it was a good outfit. After the fact, some editors at Babe defended it, saying that it was sort of a mashup of their existing style, which is profane and for girls who don't give a, can't say that on the radio, with more traditional reporting. But the result left both the report and the source open to the kinds of questions that you don't want when you Mm -hmm. publish something like this. Let's now move from the critique of the way the article was written to a critique of Grace's behavior. In The Atlantic, Caitlin Flanagan called Grace's account revenge porn, and she decried what she considered to be the excesses of the Me Too moment in which Aziz had been, in a professional sense, assassinated on the basis of one woman's anonymous account. In The New York Times, Barry Weiss asserted that the account trivializes what Me Too first stood for. Caitlin Flanagan had a line that said Grace had destroyed a man who didn't deserve it. I haven't seen anyone calling for the cancellation of his show. I haven't seen anyone calling for him to be thrown in jail. Nothing like that. Mostly what I've seen is a call for conversation from people who believe Grace's account. But what I think they latched onto was something that has been bubbling up for some time. The sort of has me too gone too far Is it taking down people who don't deserve it? Do we need to slow down? Last week, Andrew Sullivan had a thing in the cut about it's time to resist the excesses, and people are lumping together all these different kinds of behavior into the same equally insidious pot. I don't think that's true. I think women are perfectly capable of distinguishing between a Weinstein and an Ansari. 
But she used the word assault. She did. It's not harassment. It's not intimidation, even. It's assault. Yes. What Grace's story is about, and I'm not even sure that the Babe Report itself understood it, is sexual consent and intimate relationships in a way that none of these other cases have been. But it has been misunderstood by some critics as her making something out of nothing. There was something. My reaction when reading it is she was treated badly. What I didn't understand is why she didn't leave. My concern isn't about degrading the Me Too movement. Coming from where I sit as a maybe the last wave of, you know, second wave feminism is the infantilization of women for so long. And now they're speaking out, but they're not speaking out directly to the people who should hear it in the moment. It is about how tricky consent is in the moment, how one party maybe understands it differently and doesn't feel comfortable saying so. And that's a huge problem. Why didn't she say no? Why didn't she leave? These are really important questions that need answers. And those answers are not going to be easy because another thing about this story that I think has sparked so much uproar is that it is incredibly ordinary. My coworker, um, Anna North at Vox, wrote a really great piece about that, how if this story qualifies as assault, then so many others do. And that terrifies a lot of people, both the people who've experienced it and the people who maybe didn't realize that's how it was coming off or that's what it is. Because people can relate to this story in a way that they couldn't with something like Harvey Weinstein inviting famous actresses to a hotel room or Matt Lauer locking someone in a an office. These are extreme examples. This is not extreme. That makes the reactions more extreme, I think. <laughs> the choice of words seems to have taken on even more significance than before. You can see that I would have had less trouble with Grace's story if she hadn't used the word assault, mm. if she'd used the word intimidation. Mm-hmm. I remember having this trouble initially with headlines in the beginning. I didn't want to just say harassment when it also included assault. I have started to use sexual violence much more frequently because that seems appropriately grave and also encompasses a lot of different kinds of behavior. But when we're talking about these gray areas that don't have labels, it becomes much more difficult to call them out. It becomes much more difficult to talk about them. And that's, I think, what we're seeing here with this Ansari story. People are much less sure how to label this than anything else. But if anything's going to change, that's exactly what's worth digging into. What is this? How do we fix it? Why did she not feel comfortable in the moment saying anything? Why did he feel totally comfortable in the moment pushing further? These are the conversations to have. These are the worst, hardest, most personal conversations. And I think that's freaked a lot of people out. (laughs) It freaked me out. (laughs) (laughs) Caroline, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Caroline Framke is a staff writer at Vox.com, and her recent article is called The Controversy Around Babe.net's Aziz Ansari Story Explained. 
The tensions both outside and inside the Me Too movement reflects a long history of debate over what direction feminism should take. Back in 1994, the women's movement was drilling down on the workplace and issues of sex and sexuality. That January, now-disgraced TV host Charlie Rose hosted a discussion about the new wave of pro-sexuality feminism that seemed to be taking hold. Here's Naomi Wolf, who just published her book, Fire with Fire, The New Female Power and How to Use It. All the things that used to be okay for men to do are now not so okay. These are things that many men grew up thinking was a normal way to behave. Things like sexual assault, which used to be part of the dating process, not questioned, are now being questioned, and crisis, a sense of privilege being lost, a lost empire. Another cultural shift was afoot, another evolution in the women's movement. 24-year-old Rebecca Walker was also at that table. Two years earlier, she'd written an article in Ms. Magazine called Becoming the Third Wave, which gave rise to the term and movement known as third-wave feminism. I asked her how much the debate had changed since she was at that roundtable. In some ways, I don't think it's changed that much. You know, when you hear Naomi talking about the importance of really interrogating the ways in which boys are raised to think that they are entitled to transgress boundaries that women are asserting. And, and I think we, we were all, we've all been talking about the, the need to revision masculinity and to have these conversations with men, for men to have them themselves, you know, really trying to understand what it means to be a human being with, with, kind of, with empathy, with a kind of sophisticated, nuanced understanding of, of sex and sexuality and being engaged with another human being in a way that's not coercive, that's not damaging, that's not punitive, that's not unhealthy. Um, women's empowerment and women's sexual pleasure are synonymous and that part of what we need to be doing is claiming our sexual agency. And I think that's something that's coming up right now in these more nuanced discussions, certainly this discussion about the Aziz Ansari situation. How can we make sure that women are acting with a sense of clarity and purpose and understanding of of how to set appropriate boundaries of what sexual pleasure feels like and how to get it, of the importance of having communication and conversation about intimacy. That's what we were talking about then, and that's what we're talking about now. HLN host Ashley Banfield said that the expanding of the Me Too movement to include this grayer area of male-female dynamics undermines the movement. You have chiseled away at a movement that I, along with all of my sisters in the workplace, have been dreaming of for decades. A movement that has finally changed an oversexed professional environment that I, too, have struggled through at times over the last 30 years in broadcasting. If, in fact, the discussion becomes so hyper-focused on, say, microaggressions, and all of a sudden we are not criminalizing rapists, all of a sudden we are not calling out men who are deeply engaged in sexual harassment and assault in the workplace. If all of that is somehow silenced and erased, and all we're doing is talking about this other thing, then we could have a conversation (laughs) about the dilution of the movement. 
the gray areas are where bad behaviors are learned, codified, because they aren't examined closely. I think that the gray area here is where this disease festers. There has been another reaction Mm. to the uh, Aziz Ansari situation. And this also echoed concerns from the 90s about infantilizing or re-victimizing women. It's something that I am getting schooled on. But here was Katie Royfe back at that roundtable. I do think that we have to be careful when we teach people about issues like rape and sexual harassment, that what we aren't doing is teaching women about their vulnerability and teaching men that they are aggressive and teaching women not to form an identity, especially a sexual identity, around the idea of being victimized. I I think I remember staying out of a a little bit of that because it was just so absurd. I mean, the idea that by talking about the dynamics of being victimized, of people being predators, that somehow you're going to create an identity around that, to me, is absurd. When you begin to identify the ways in which you've been oppressed, in which some people are oppressors and how they operate, what usually happens is people stop feeling like victims and they start feeling like survivors. That There's nothing wrong with them personally. This is part of a systemic approach to controlling and manipulating the kinds of bodies that they happen to occupy. Earlier, you mentioned that Part of the discussion we need to be having now isn't just about the entitled behavior of someone like Ansari. You also talked about Grace's agency and how she needed to think about using it. We all don't feel the same level of agency, mm-hmm. and that often the, the agency that we do feel is a result of, of our privilege, and that mm-hmm. privilege is sometimes not about race or class, but just about having taken a class and understanding different ideas or about having a woman in your family who told you stories about, you know, how to feel good about yourself or how to say no. I mean... Or being 22. Exactly. And so I think there should be room in this conversation to acknowledge that what we hope is that every grace does begin to have the tools to articulate what she feels comfortable with and what she doesn't in any given moment. But she clearly didn't have that at that moment. And our job is not to say, oh, hey, you should have just gotten out of there. Mm -hmm. Our job is to say, imagine all of the young women who don't have the sense of agency and how can we make sure that they do in the future. And that's why I love this conversation. So talking about this is the opposite of infantilizing. It's empowering. Absolutely. If that person is dismissed as a weak child, that is infantilizing. If she is heard as someone who is struggling to figure out how to do it better, and we respond with helpful language and support, then, you know, we are not silencing her in the way she would be silenced in that encounter. We are actually contributing to her conversation and growth. That's what feminism should be. We're bringing voice. We're not shutting people down. You've said that you're 
happy and that you're delighted? And is that because it's so much easier to have conversations like this now than it was back in the 90s? Yes. You know, even though there is a quote-unquote backlash and people are criticizing her, the power of the Me Too movement, the dynamism of the multiple fronts of people who are speaking out against all kinds of microaggressions, macroaggressions, is much louder. We are dominating the space in a a way that was not happening in the 90s. Charlie Rose couldn't help you with that? (laughs) (laughs) That was snotty, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I mean, the irony is not lost, that when we look at that clip, it's very meaningful that Charlie Rose has been exposed, and so he is no longer steering the discussion. He is the discussion, that was not happening then. And also what's so encouraging, you know, men who are saying, I did things that were inappropriate. I am sorry. I support the women coming forward. I find that meaningful. I know a lot of people feel like they can poo-poo that, but in my lifetime, men have been denying what they've done, minimizing it, This for third wave was a pillar that men are our allies when they come forward willing to acknowledge the ways in which they have been shaped and their expectations and their confusion and upset around the masculinity they've been asked to assume. When they come forward and support our voices and our experiences and are willing to engage them, they need to be respected Mm. and included and understood as as trying to be a part of a movement as opposed to just quickly demonized and sort of shunted aside. This system that we're currently living in is hard on all of us. It's hard on white men. It's hard on white women. It's deeply hard on all of us on the margins, and yet we have to understand that this system that's making white men into workaholics and people who have lost touch with empathy and with their own deep humanity, it's killing them too. So I think there's a much stronger sense of the need for all of us to get free. And I find that very, very encouraging. Rebecca, thank you so much. (laughs) You are so welcome. Rebecca Walker is the author of many books, including What Makes a Man, 22 Writers Imagine the Future. And she's co-founder of the Third Wave Fund, an organization that provides grants to individuals and projects that support young women. This is On the Media. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. Late last week, Facebook's CEO Mark Zuckerberg said that the site's 2 billion users and the businesses that depend on their attention will begin to experience a great change in the social media platform. Here's what you can expect to see. More posts, photos, and videos from your friends and family. That means less content from businesses, brands, and fewer news articles, too. Zuckerberg predicts you'll spend less time on Facebook as a result and says this will be, quote, good for people's well-being. 
The site's new algorithm is a gut punch for the already staggering news industry, which for the past several years has been enticed into ever more dependence on Facebook for reaching its audience. Today, 45% of all Americans get news on Facebook, but for most news organizations, that audience will be decimated, sparing not even the Bay Area's own San Francisco Chronicle. Audrey Cooper, the paper's editor-in-chief, penned a scathing open letter to Zuckerberg last week, warning of the damage to the news business and to democracy. Audrey, welcome to the show. Thank you. You spoke to Mark Zuckerberg in the flesh at, at an event, I think, in San Francisco. Well, do you remember his exact words? He said, I just want you to know I appreciate you and I appreciate all the work that Chronicle does. You guys are really important. And I know Facebook has a role in that, too. And we really want to help you, particularly around subscriptions. Well. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> so was he lying? He seemed genuine. That was April. That's before they were compelled to come and testify before Congress. A lot of things changed. Now, Facebook says the news is messy, it makes people anxious, it makes you angry, and they really want to reconnect people with their friends and family, which is all good and well unless you think about the type of stories that your friends and family are sharing. Aha, and that's key to this point, because one of the reasons, presumably, that Facebook is doing this is to deal with the fake news problem. It was tied up in the controversy over the election and all of the phony, highly politicized material that was traded freely on Facebook. And this change in the algorithm, they believe, will enable them to sort of wash their hands of the whole thing. You see, I don't believe they think that. I believe they don't know how to fix the problem they created when 140 million Americans saw Russian propaganda touted as news on their platform. If anything, this change in how you see your newsfeed is actually going to make the problem of fake news and the country's absolutism a lot worse. Hundreds of thousands, millions of people around the country opted in to follow legitimate news publishers to cut through the noise to try to get direct from the source real news. And by suppressing that sort of news, by saying that you, Bob, even though you decided to follow the New York Times or NPR or the San Francisco Chronicle, we think we know what's best for you and we're going to suppress that anyway. But we'll still give you the Infowars conspiracy fake news stuff that your crazy second uncle is sharing. You said that the audience opted to go to Facebook for news, but so did publishers. Publishers kind of rejiggered their business models to accommodate Facebook and other social media platforms. The analogy I keep glomming onto is that is this as if the car manufacturer was told by some third party like a government, we're switching from the English system to the metric system, so all of your parts now have to be in metric. And the industry spends a gazillion dollars retooling to accommodate the metric system. And then two years later, the same third party authority says, yeah, you know, we kind of like the English system. It makes people happier. At the end of the day, they make these very seemingly capricious decisions. They don't get any buy-in for it. But, you know, the people who say news media shouldn't have relied on Facebook, I just say, well, what was the option? You know, to ignore where everybody else was reading news? I became a subscriber to the Washington Post and the New York Times and Mother Jones magazine 
because I saw their stories on my newsfeed and I would click through and I really got engaged with that content and I became a subscriber. Almost every major newsroom in America nowadays is funded that way, at least in part. Now, there is this infrastructure at Facebook of uh, people who fan out and deal with all the publishers who use the platform, or many of them, and kind of help them hack the algorithm in order to you know, get the most audience engagement. Have they been in contact with the Chronicle to say, well, you know, yeah, yeah, you're going to lose some reach, but if you do this, if you do that, you know, you can, at least at the margin, get the most out of the new news feed. I haven't heard any explicit advice come from Facebook. The day that Mark made his posting saying, you know, essentially news makes you cranky and anxious, so we're going to suppress it. That day we got an email from our uh, contact on a corporate level with Facebook. You know, we're lucky we're owned by a corporation that has a lot of newspapers. It's easy to communicate with us. The tiny neighborhood blogs didn't get that. The school district blogger didn't get that. Forget about the news industry, the nonprofits that rely on Facebook to post to people who might be interested in subscribing or donating, they didn't get that either. And, you know, I have to make the point that the San Francisco Chronicle is not going to go out of business because Facebook changed its algorithm. It was never our biggest source of traffic to sfchronicle.com. What I am worried about, however, are the number of companies that aren't able to sustain themselves with new subscriptions like we do that did rely on Facebook to direct traffic their way. I think that's a major problem for this country. Now, from the beginning, Mark Zuckerberg has made the claim that Facebook is not a publisher. It is a platform, and it's a consequence under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act It's held harmless for libel and certain copyright infringement issues and so forth. But over the years, it has very much become a publisher. It prints news and other content and sells advertising against it, which is, you know, one pretty good definition of what a publisher does. Is that what this is about? I I think absolutely Mark Zuckerberg wishes he could put the genie back in the bottle. You can't. We have trained this country to be able to get real news on Facebook. That's just a fact. If you build your company and change the way that discourse happens, I believe you have a responsibility to your shareholders, to your users, and to this country to do right by it and not just shrug your shoulders, say we can't stop clickbait or the Russians, so we give up. Audrey, thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate you doing this. Audrey Cooper is editor-in-chief of the San Francisco Chronicle. Stephen Dojcinovic is the editor-in-chief of the Serbian website KRIK. That's an acronym for Crime and Corruption Reporting Network, a nonprofit news organization in Belgrade. But Krik is also the Serbo-Croatian word for scream. And in a sense, Krik screams routinely about the corruption and authoritarianism that continues to plague the nominal democracy that's emerged in the 17 years since the overthrow of Slobodan Milosevic. But Dojcinovic has screamed most recently in the New York Times in an op-ed on how Facebook's decision to move Serbian news into a separate feed called Explore 
literally marginalized independent journalism in a market dominated by the soft censorship of the Alexander Vucic regime. The government mostly uses the financial tools to control the media. And what they do, they're basically giving advertising money to the media who are loyal to them. Vucic has under his control the really nasty tablets. And if he doesn't like you, he'll put these tablets against you. And I already went through this. I was a couple of times they published really nasty stuff about me, calling me like mafia figure, criminal reporter, terrorist. We are not the only one who are independent media, but is kind of less and less of us. For that reason, for us, actually, the Facebook itself and social networks are becoming more and more important in terms of spreading our news. As I understand it, there are three ways for a third-party publisher to have a story appear in my newsfeed, or at least were until this change. The first was that I'm a user, I post a story that's of interest to me, and it goes organically to my Facebook friends. Another way is for me to pay Facebook to post it and give it prominence. And then the third was in partnership with Facebook where I do stories that are exclusive to the Facebook feed and Facebook and I share the revenue for that. Which of those three mechanisms is the one that you most depended on? Basically, we publish the news on our Facebook page, deciding about each specific story. We were thinking about what kind of audience will be interested, and then we pay money and send this news to the audience which we specifically choose. Before the Explore feed, it was easy to reach the people that already liked our page. So we were never even trying to boost for our own audience who liked our page. We were always through boost we used to reach some other audience which is uh, not on our page. After the Explore feed is introduced, now we're just basically paying money to reach our own audience. This thing really hurt us. Now, before Facebook announced its changes in the United States, which is by far its largest market, Serbia was part of an experiment that took place in a number of countries, Guatemala, Slovakia, Bolivia, and Cambodia, in which the news was suppressed in the news feed. And there was a story in the New York Times earlier this week that these algorithm changes are actually resulting in more fake news in these countries that were the subjects of experiments. Did that happen in Serbia? Yeah, that's logical, because the really dangerous fake news uh, websites and portals, they are usually owned or controlled by some top government officials who hiddenly controls them, or we have uh, uh, media in Serbia are controlled by organized crime figures, and they have a lot of money. And they produce fake news, which is used for clear uh, political or criminal purpose. So with the money they have, they will always be able to pay more and reach bigger audience through the Facebook. And for us, it's uh, much harder to get back. I want to ask you one more thing. As we discussed earlier, you are in a country where press freedom is suppressed by the Vucic regime, which is obviously bad for democracy. Is it more or less dangerous 
when that power is placed in the hands of one private company? Everything in the country is now controlled by one person, and that's always dangerous. On the other side, independent media, they are relying on the Facebook. So our destiny is really in the hands of the one company. And what we see now is that after this experiment that was done in uh, my country and a couple more countries, now the Facebook will be trying to introduce the same change on the Facebook worldwide. But eventually, I think everybody understands that this, it's not good cure for fake news. Steven, thank you. Thank you. Steven Docinovich is the editor-in-chief of the Crime and Corruption Reporting Network, Creek, an investigative news outlet based in Belgrade, Serbia. This is On the Media. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. Joe Frank died Monday. He was 79. And he was a radio giant. He conducted interviews, read stories, wrote dramas, and none of it was like anything done before because it was so raw and, frankly, nuts. To many of us, it was shocking and sad. He wasn't a huge star. But his light has been reflected in the great work of people you do know. Mark Oppenheimer is the host of the podcast on Orthodox. He spent the past year interviewing Joe and those he influenced for an article in Slate called Joe Frank Signs Off. So when I first had the idea to write about Joe Frank, for a while he didn't get back to me. Then he sent me some emails basically saying, no, go away. Then there was an email that said, try me in a couple months when I'm feeling better. Then at one point, he had this idea that we would collaborate on an article that was partly fictional, but that I would put my name to it as a journalist. And then maybe I would get found out. And wouldn't it be interesting if the world unraveled what he and I had collaborated to make? And I said, Joe, that's not what I do. I write true stuff that gets fact-checked. And if I do that, I've basically destroyed my career. You know, I'm not an experimental radio artist. I'm a journalist. And then eventually he said, OK, come on out and we can talk. Tell me about him. Tell me, first of all, about what his life was like. Joe Frank had one of the most difficult lives of anyone who didn't live through a genocide, whom I've ever interviewed. He was sickly his entire life. He was born with club feet. He had testicular cancer at a young age. He had a different cancer about every other decade for all of his 80 years. His mother hated him. His father died young. He was just in enormous physical and psychological pain. He was a child of privilege. He grew up quite wealthy um, on Central Park in New York City, the child of parents who had fled the Nazis. He hadn't trained to be a radio person. He had gone to the Iowa Writers' Workshop and wanted to be a fiction writer. And then for a while, he was a high school teacher at the Dalton School in New York City. Then he promoted concerts up in western Massachusetts, and he would drive up and down I-91 and listen to the radio on his way to the shows he was promoting in the Springfield area. And that's when he began to think that maybe he had a future in radio because he found that those voices keeping him company late at night on the highway in the cold were so soothing to him and gave him a kind of community and company that held his melancholy at bay. And so he began to volunteer at WBAI, which was radio-wise really the place to be, was doing very interesting work. Uh, Hit or miss work, some of it was terrible. (laughs) But he went there and just studied and learned to cut audio, learned to edit, and listened. 
So what did you experience the first time you heard him? I have to say that if I had encountered Joe Frank on my own without knowing how much he had meant to some of these really great cultural figures like Ira Glass or Alexander Payne, the film director, I probably would have listened for a few minutes and then turned the radio off. I probably would have said, this isn't my cup of tea. He's difficult. He resists you. He doesn't come to you. He tells stories that don't make sense unless you listen for the whole 25 or 45 minutes. (laughs) And even then. And even then. (laughs) He often operates at the boundaries of fiction and nonfiction so that if you're not paying attention, you snap too after your mind wanders and you're not sure if you're listening to a story about his life that really happened or if he's reading the evening news. If you can't pay really close attention, then he's not for you. He is for late night listening in the car by yourself. And it's not an accident that his career really flourished once he left the New York-Washington axis and moved to Los Angeles because that is a city where a lot of lonely people are in cars by themselves late at night. This is Joe Frank. I'm here at the Bellflower Hotel in the rooms of Bertram Fields, a preeminent performer in the art of mime. Have you ever thought about what else you might have done in your life uh, had you chosen another career path? I suppose if I had not become a mime, I think I would have considered going into a registered nursing. I was always interested in uh, bodily fluids and people's reaction to different medication. And I You've just been rejected from your 12th audition of the week. You have a couple drinks at the bar. You get in the car to head back to the valley, to your little efficiency apartment, and it's 11 p.m., and you turn on the radio, and you're looking for some company, for some solace, and you give it your undivided attention. That's where Joe Frank hits people. sense of, um, of what you're going to be doing at Carnegie Hall. Could you give us uh, perhaps a taste of, um, of the performance this Thursday evening? Well... We're doing a broad range of material at the concert, but perhaps you might like this one. Uh, This is uh, from the Decrue days. It's always been a big favorite. It's called Nothing Happened. The Joe Frank that I enjoy is is really the funny and the very silly Joe Frank, the absurdist Joe Frank. And he did a piece called Prayer, Mm -hmm. which aired in different versions in 1994 and 1995. So the whole hour is about religion and the different ways people relate to religion. Frank was a very committed atheist. Uh, He had very conflicted feelings about his own Jewish background. But he was, like many atheists, obsessed with religion. And one of the pieces in the hour-long episode called Prayer is a performance by a late poet and performance artist from Baltimore named David Franks, uh, with an S on the end. And Franks had this stock character who was this radio uh, evangelist, this faith healer who would Mm -hmm. heal people over the radio. And what Joe Frank did was he had David Franks come on as this preacher and take phone calls from stroke victims, from people with disabilities or palsies, and he would lead them in these incantations. He would say, now repeat after me. And then he would have them pray to, you know, the great otter god, and he would would say, you know, okay, repeat after me. Let me be like a mouse inside a mousetrap. Inside a mousetrap. Inside a mousetrap. Feed me. Feed me. Bread. Bread. Wine. Hamsters, rats, bullfrogs, African Eurasian tiger pussycats. 
Thank you for ages and thank you for the kids. I love me, oh father. This was incredibly cruel, and I do believe that the callers were real people. Uh, Joe Frank would do live shows. Pieces were recorded, but pieces could also be live. Um, he also did a pledge drive once where he said, if we don't meet our targets, we're going to shoot this dog here in the studio. <laughs> um, <laughs> they, they didn't meet the target, and they pretended to shoot the dog. Frank could be very cruel, but what you have to remember is that he had suffered at least as much as the people who were calling in. I mean, this was his own pain that he was working through. This is someone who, you know, had nightmares because of the enema he'd been given in the hospital (laughs) when he had an undescended testicle operated on, and then he had testicular cancer, and, you know, his cousin donated a kidney to him and then billed him for the kidney. This was someone who'd been through enormous pain in his life. You can find Mark Oppenheimer's story, Joe Frank Signs Off, in Slate. When Frank died, I assumed I'd find someone he influenced just down the hall. Yep, Radio Lab's Chad Abumrod. I played him some tape. When you hug people goodbye after a social event, perhaps a dinner party or a gallery opening, there is always that moment when they squeeze you more forcefully than before a polite way of letting you know they are about to withdraw. Usually, the one who disengages first is the one who cares less. When this used to happen to me, I felt rejected and humiliated. I'd come home with a lonely, sick feeling. And that's why, in order to assume the power position and gain the psychological advantage, I now hug people very briefly. Perhaps one or two seconds before freeing myself. Sometimes, if I detect any resistance, I'll push the person away. In one instance, I caused a woman to fall backwards over a chair, injuring her back, which led to her hospitalization. But I had no choice. It was a matter of (laughs) self-preservation. Oh, man. That is classic, Joe Frank. It's really good writing, you know? He writes these, like, scenarios. They're like demented talk of the towns in a way. Like, they're just (laughs) these little fragments of dark experience, which are beautifully realized, very vivid, kind of funny, but kind of also troubling. Like, there there are always many things at once, you know? (laughs) How do you think he influenced you? Because you were always a great producer, always technically adept. You had... Tons of musical composition training. You understood the rhythmic possibilities of radio, all of which are heard continually in the programs that you produce. So what did he do that you don't think you could have done without him? It's a lot of different things. This was way at the beginning for me when Radio Lab was just a three-hour thing on the AM station. We're These, going back how far? We're going back to the Stone Age. So say like January, February 2002, mm-hmm. somewhere around there, really at the beginning. And everybody here who knows the beginning of Radio Lab knows that I didn't deserve that show. It was just too soon, and I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have a style. I had this, I had the like unfortunate thing that we all had back in 2002 is that I just wanted to be Ira Glass. Everybody wanted to be Ira Glass, right? And I was still trying to figure out, like, okay, so who am I? What do I want my stuff to sound like? And so I would, every Sunday night, I'd have to put it three hours. And it was an anthology show at that point. And it was literally take the best documentaries from the BBC, the CBC in Canada, the ABC in Australia, Radio Netherlands, all the stuff, and 
package them into three continuous hours, and I would sort of narrate in and out of different segments. And so from 8 to 11, I'd be playing my show, and I was board hopping at the time, Mm -hmm. which means I wasn't just making the thing, but I had to sit at the board, hit play on the CD, and then between hour one and hour two and hour two and hour three, I'd have to say the weather, (laughs) right? (laughs) So I was doing the whole thing. And after me, Joe Frank would come on, and he was part of my shift. And every time I'd just be like, what the F is this stuff? I, I would just be sitting there listening to him and just like amazed and like mentally taking notes, being like, oh, this guy has a feel and a there's a surreality and a disorientingness to his stuff that I was just, just really fascinated by. And I was like, oh, I want to I wanna do that. There's something transgressive in everything that he does. And um, I like to think we try to sort of embody that spirit a little bit and that we're making things that aren't always safe. They kind of want to mess you up a tiny bit or they want to trouble you in all the right ways. When I was a little radio baby, I feel like that was something like, oh, you know, I can Mm -hmm. do, I didn't think I could do that. Can we play that one that we said that we can't play? There was a time when I danced on a street corner dressed as a chicken. My job was to draw attention to a furniture store down the block. One evening, when my shift was over, still wearing my chicken outfit, I walked into a bar across the street. I ordered a Bombay martini, straight up, olives on the side. (laughs) A prostitute sat down next to me. She was young, willowy, had a faraway look in her eyes. Her name was Meredith. We talked about our careers, the importance of networking, setting goals, focus. <laughs> then I excused myself, walked into the men's room, entered a stall, and sat down on the toilet and had a bowel movement that broke in two, and half of it was still hanging out of me, so I had to wipe myself 50 times, repeatedly checking to see if there was more left on the toilet paper. And written on the wall were the words, know that someone is suffering anonymously and unknown, <laughs> and that by the time you read this, I'll be dead. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> oh, that's good. That's really good. Wow. There's nothing wrong with playing that clip. Actually, he's not using any bad words. It's true. I mean, it's there's some... no FCC violations there. <laughs> and it's simply gross. <laughs> yes. And yet. You tell me that there's this person on the planet to whom that hasn't happened. <laughs> and there's there's some connection between the isolation and loneliness of the person having written and then the loneliness you feel in the stall <laughs> in that moment. Yeah. You hear something like that and it gives you permission. You know, you didn't think you could write something nutty and gross the way that, that he did in the clip we just heard. A sense of unboundedness. Yeah, I'll put it to you this way. Uh, that, that idea of like being mischievous and transgressive and a little bit dark and the way he talks too, that kind of like super hushed high hiss. There's like a high hiss on his voice. There's something just about the sound of his voice and, and there's a kind of like deep trance-inducing quality to listening to a Joe Frank story. All of those elements. I thought, could I take that and put it into journalism? the telling of true stories, the reporting of true stories, could that stuff sound like Joe Frank? I remember 
thinking very consciously, I'd love to be able to be Joe Frank in a different mode. Well, there is a certain similar resonance, and I think you both make really good use of the proximity effect. Yes. I mean, you, you're doing both, it right now. Yeah, you're both really leaning into the mic. You know, there is a sort of, I'm really in your head. Mm-hmm. That's what he does. Yeah, yeah. And you do that too? I do, yeah. I mean, Joe Frank always had the quality of like, he's coming from inside your head out and then back in again. <laughs> he has that kind of quality where it, it sounds like he's somehow like the voice in your head, but broadcast back into your head. <laughs> um, I, there's something about that quality, which I, I, that's what I want from the radio. It's what I want from podcasts. I want someone to be speaking from inside me in a way. Have you ever talked about Joe Frank to... Uh, oh, yeah. I give this talk 30, 40 times a year where I have like an extended Joe Frank excerpt. I have an image of Joe Frank that I show. Uh, yeah, I talk about Joe Frank all the time. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you what it was. It, it was the experience of being in a studio when you, when you don't know what you're doing. And in those moments when you're staring at this evil mic, like you have these voices that enter your head. And so I go through the series of voices that were in my head, and it was Scott Simon... Because Scott has that kind of like, you know, really, or that really super intimate way that he does. And I was like, oh, I want to be Scott, you know. At the same time, Scott has a certain preciousness. I don't mean that in a bad way. And for me, Joe Frank was this like antidote. But so what did Joe Frank give you? That sense of the voice in your head, the dark thoughts that you don't speak out loud, that sense of transgressive, like I'm going to say something that's a little bit wrong. All of those things were things I wanted for my show. Yeah. And there were many times when people wanted to adapt his stuff, but it just didn't seem to travel off the radio. One time, someone stole from him. Really? It was the writer of the Martin Scorsese film, this absurdist kind of Virgil-like exploration of New York called After Hours. And he uh, got paid, he says, quite handsomely after the lawsuit. Wow, I did not know that. That's crazy. It's funny. Now that we're talking about it, I'm surprised there was never a Joe Frank moment, a moment where he kind of came back. So I don't know. I wonder how some of the clips you're playing, I wonder how it sounds to somebody who's in their 20s and just getting into podcasting. It still sounds good to me. I could <laughs> me just be because I'm an old fart at this point. But I was like, I, I would listen to that. Even though the music's a little weird, I would totally listen to that. He was the radio producer's radio producer. The vast majority of our listeners, of the people listening to this, I'm going to have to assume they never heard of Joe Frank. And he was always available on podcast, but he was like this mystery yeah. to people who weren't willing to sort of follow the breadcrumbs to him. You know, I'll tell you, I mean, when I give this talk that I that I often give, mm-hmm. and I go through the series of people who've influenced me, and I always list, I list uh, Joe Frank in, 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 a, in a list. It goes, it goes Ira, Scott, Joe. I'll always ask any Joe Frank fans in the house. These will be like audiences of about 2,000, 2,500 people, and like one time someone clapped one time i remember like there was a clap in the far right and i was like oh my god a joe frank fan it always broke my heart a little bit because no one ever knew his stuff like amongst us our little sort of posse of radio people he's a legend but nobody on the outside ever knew him you know this is going to be their chance yeah this is the opportunity to do that i think people want stuff that's just not not usual right now and he was basically 
the epitome of that. It certainly takes you out of the crazy dark world you're in and deposits you in a <laughs> smarter crazy dark smarter world. Smarter crazy dark world, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jad. Yeah, thanks for, for grabbing me and doing this. Last night I dreamt I was lost on an elevator. All the floors were the same. Then I realized the elevator was moving horizontally. So I tried another elevator. The Express. But it just got me more lost faster. People kept getting on and getting off. They were all wearing green gauze over their heads and were smoking ice cream cones. I said, please let me off at 39th Street. And the conductor said, this is 35th Street. You'll have to walk three blocks and take the escalator. But when I got to the escalator, it was just a phone booth. So I made a call. I called my father. I said, hello, I'm lost on 39th Street looking for an escalator and I can't find it anywhere. And he said, I'll be right there. And there he was. And the phone booth started moving forward very slowly with my father and I in it. And I didn't know where it was going or why. And he said, don't be afraid. This phone booth will take us home. And I said, but we have no home. And he said, we live on the eighth floor, apartment Y. And I said, why? And he said, yes. One day, I'll visit the Ringling Brothers' winter home for retired animals and watch lions and elephants wearing bathrobes and tattered slippers, strolling on the beach. I'll walk along the shore, climb up on a cliff, and think about my life. On the Media is produced by Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, Michael Lowinger, and Leah Fetter. We had more help from John Hanrahan, Isaac Naple, and Monique Laborde. This was Monique's last week with the show. She was awesome, and we wish her all the best. And our show was edited by Brooke. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Terrence Bernardo. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio. NYC Now delivers breaking news, top headlines, and in-depth coverage from WNYC and Gothamist every morning, midday, and evening. By sponsoring our programming, you'll reach a community of passionate listeners in an uncluttered audio experience. Visit sponsorship.wnyc.org to learn more.